Welcome to the season 3 of the India Energy R podcast. The India Energy R podcast explores the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities of India's energy transition through an in-depth discussion on policies, financial markets, social movements and science. The podcast is hosted by energy transition researcher and author Dr. Sandeep Pai and senior energy and climate journalist Shreya Jai. The show is produced by multimedia journalist Tejas Dayananda Sagar and is presented by 101 Reporters, a pan-India network of grassroots reporters that produces original stories from the rural India. As the G20 host, India deftly managed geopolitics. especially Russia Ukraine while driving energy and climate discussions topics like renewable energy critical minerals and sustainable finance took center stage likely impacting the upcoming COP summit India's challenges finding unity among diverse priorities addressing resource nationalism and aligning nations in various green energy stages the G20 leaders summit underscores the quest for consensus on issues like fossil fuel abatement amidst complex political landscapes to understand what the key themes of energy and climate are in the G20 what the sticking points are and how they will shape the global dialogue on energy transition we interviewed swati disuza india lead analyst and coordinator at international energy agency iea who provides insights into india's efforts and the key points of discussion during the G20 summit Swati welcome to the India Energy Art podcast it's really great to have you back you were with us on episode 3 when we had just started the podcast um and so we are really delighted to have you back uh we have crossed 50 episodes so it's very exciting that you're back after almost 50 episodes um so welcome welcome to the podcast Thank you thank you Sandeep thank you Shreya firstly congratulations crossing 50 episode what is the season 2 season 3 season 4 what is season now we series oh that is yeah. nice that is i think at season 5 guys we should have a huge party so we should get listeners from all over the world to like come together and have a huge party but congratulations and thank you for having me on this podcast Thank you always a pleasure to have you you have been with us in every milestone you were in the initial third episode now this is the 51st i guess so thank you yet again for joining and it's always a delight to hear you yay thank you okay so normally as you know we have this tradition that we spend some time with the guest when the guest comes uh to our podcast but since we went through your past episode in the past episode we went through your life journey and all um so i would refer our audience to go back to episode 3 and listen to swati's fascinating energy and climate journey uh but i do have one question that how has your overall experience been um just like being on like be- being very close to how the g20 process is going on like it's a big moment in india that you know such a big process 
is happening and you know india is at the center stage normally you know when g20s happen people like us go and attend those things in other countries but it's it's a different thing to see it unfold from a logistics point of view and like from, so how has been like your personal experience as a researcher as a scholar in terms of just experiencing the the changing the the whole g20 experience and within that climate and energy you know dialogues That's a very good question because I have to say when we started talking about participating in G20, about helping the Indian government through the G20 process, um, we didn't know what we were going into. At least I didn't know what I was going into. My other colleagues at BIE, of course, knew what they were going into. I did not know. For me, it was all new. Um so it has been very interesting and enriching to see uh where it began and how it sort of scaled up so like for example you know august september last year around this time last year when indonesia was putting out the bali summit and the leader summit and all um we in india were wondering how the indian government is going to plan this event at this grand scale um how what will be the priorities how they're going to do it um and for the longest time there wasn't enough uh, uh for the longest time the government was talking about it and planning about it behind but we were uh, but but then it started getting csos involved in this process and one of the stands that the indian government took particularly was that uh given it's an indian g20 the role of domestic uh, think tanks will be um, uh, will be center uh, will be central to the process um and while they did rely on a lot of international organizations iea world bank um iista idina uh adb so uh, they did rely on a lot of these organizations as well but it was the domestic think tanks who were sort of driving uh helping the government drive the G20 agenda um so that was very interesting to see how that happened it was um i've never been part of uh cop negotiations from the official side so this was my first foray into diplomacy from the official uh country perspective and i think it was really interesting to see how uh the nuances changed right from the first meeting uh in different working groups all the way till the last meeting um and just to see that process and understand that process and understand what people say and the language of diplomacy itself is uh was very very interesting i think this has been one of the most um uh, enriching years of the career that i've had so far just from like a learning perspective uh particularly on diplomacy and how it works behind the scenes and how countries and parties come to a negotiation um it's just been great you know everyone is also talking about a very different angle this is on a lighter note obviously that how this is india's breakout party you know last we had cwg <laughs> before the nation games and this is india's chance to just show if you go around the bharat mandapa mars while pragati madan you could see everything that is there of indian culture is there and i'm sure you have gone to several cities where a lot of you know these diplomacy talks happen 
So, do you think we have been able to project? Uh, and I asked it both in a lighter and a serious tone. Uh, in terms of you know projecting India, Indian culture, how have your thoughts been as an Indian? Second, uh, in these discussions and deliberations, do you think India has maintained like a fairly strong stand, or we have been just being like very uh, submissive, or were we? Okay, so to answer your first question in a lighter way, and I think I loved my India version. Okay, like it was a India tour. It was amazing because um, you know often when we travel to different cities, uh, being Indians ourselves, like I don't think about like the culture of the place where I'm going to because in my head I'm like this is my own, this is my backyard, right? I don't really need to do this, but you're like. it was front and center and and it's not just like the indians but literally every delegate that delegation from different countries that came to g20 across different working groups enjoyed this um understanding indian culture you know you're only talking about like the decorations and the cultural performance i'm even going to the food because my god like like we have this thing called atithi devo bhava which is like when the guest comes First, like welcome the guests, like it's their house, and then second, like feed them, feed and just keep feeding them, which is literally what the Indian government did. So they fed like the delegate some of the best food you will ever get um, across the country, and the kind of flavors that they could experience was so. It was all in all, I thought it was one of our. um i wasn't uh, i was considerably younger during the cwg game so i have nothing to compare it to but i should say that i personally have been very impressed by the organization of the entire g20 and i and yes i'm going to do a taxi driver anecdote i know everybody hates that but i'm still going to do it because i went to so many of these meetings and i was talking to like a lot of the drivers who were you know taking us between venues and it has also like the local population in many of these areas were very happy that you know the meeting was being held in their area or city and they could like get employment opportunities out of it or some economic opportunities out of it um so all in all like i thought it was from a cultural standpoint we put up a feast and a wedding like i think it's going to be really hard to like top this i'm i'm very sure brazil is going to do whatever it can to top it but it was just like a lot of fun um on the more serious question and i'm sorry to say this sir but can you repeat the serious question because i just went down the food food memory lane over here no no i completely understand brought back mem- some memories for me as well uh it has been fascinating we have been looking at so many things food is an integral part of it since we are food has to be there my serious uh, part of the question was that uh, in terms of the deliberations or the discussions that you're witnessing what has been the tone of india like just tone i am we're not getting into topics have we been aggressive have we been dismissive submissive how have we been you know i am sure our audience wants to know that we were the host did we act like this good nice host saying yes to everything or we were like we are the host listen to us so traditionally the role of the presidency is to 
uh, bring consensus amongst different parties, different points of view, different opinions. Um, they can't be very aggressive in their stance. So sure, they do set the agenda. And that's where a lot of the priorities that the presidency wants to have start getting reflected. But once the agenda is set, um, it is the job of the presidency to sort of bring people together and bring countries together to reach a common minimum point. Um, in that, I think India did wonderfully, okay, because um, it wasn't about whether we were being aggressive or not. It was there were divisions given the Russia-Ukraine war and the impact that it has had on global geopolitics and relations between different countries. There were obvious fissures um, during just entering into the meeting. Um, so India had a very tough uh, task to uh, manage because we are friends with Russia. So it's, uh, you know, unlike a lot of other countries, it's, it's while we do condemn Russia and while the Prime Minister has condemned Russia for its actions on Ukraine and asked for the war to be stopped, um, at the same time, historically, we've, we've had very good ties with Russia. So India has been in a very unique spot as a chair president while understanding these fissures and and def definitely not wanting to take sides when these fissures come out in the public domain. Um, so given that, I think India played a really good balancing act. The presidency, all the chairs um, in different working groups played a very good uh, balancing act um, uh, while driving the negotiations and arriving at some amount of common win-win point. Great. Um, so uh, let's start with really the big picture questions and then we'll kind of go into the specifics of where we stand in terms of, uh, we are almost at the cusp of the end of G20. So where does it stand? And then kind of like, what does it mean for COP and beyond? Um, so my big picture question is like, you know, when India took the presidency, there's just some key global geopolitical events that were shaping energy and climate landscape. One was the Russia-Ukraine war, um, and that re completely realigned countries. You know, a lot of countries became what we call in India, Atmanir or wanted to, like from an energy security point of view. There, and countries were still recovering from COVID, you know, economic shocks and, and things like that. So what do you think were some of the key kind of points of discussion uh, that was shaped by these geopolitical events uh, at this G20. Like, like which were some of the you know thorny issues or issues that really India needed to resolve. Uh, I'm not even asking like how they resolved, but like what were the points themselves. Um. So it's a very good question because a lot of this geopolitical debate actually. Uh, featured across the Indian presidency. So this whole, uh, you know, Russia-Ukraine war and the impact that it has had on energy and on trade and on domestic uh, uh, production and domestic demand across globally, across all countries, was what shaped different working groups. So I think this was one of the first presidencies that had energy and climate as center focus across so many working groups. So if you um, 
So, of course, there's the energy transition working group, which had energy and energy as a central focus. But the framework working group also had energy as a central focus. Here it came from, you know, the uh, inflationary impact that COVID plus the war has had on countries across the world. And the impact that this has had on food prices, on fertilizer prices, on just the impact at the household level. There was discussion on how central banks should start thinking about sh- short and uh, medium term shocks to the system uh, because of climate change, because of energy transition. So that came about. Uh, that was uh, that was in the framework working group. The sustainable finance working group again had a focus on climate, which was talking about, you know, NDB reforms and how to sort of push low cost finance. So while the energy side and I'll come to the energy working group because that requires a much longer conversation. So while the energy working group also had low cost finance, that was more from the demand side. But the sustainable finance working group was more from the supply side. So how do we get finance into a lot of these low cost economies? Um, uh, sorry, low, co- uh, low carbon uh, technologies and sectors. Uh, then, of course, you had the infrastructure working group where because um, India uh, is India and a lot of the global south countries um, have a lot of uh, are vulnerable to physical risks. So the infrastructure working group also dealt on climate and the impact of climate change on physical assets. The disaster resilience working group, obviously, because India is uh, has co-created the uh, coalition for disaster resilience, um, the the international body. So there, of course, climate was there. Again, in and then the climate working group under the ministry had it. Um, the 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 development working group had something called life, which also had shades of energy and climate. So you can see that this entire conundrum in twenty the the havoc and the the shocks that happened to the global supply energy supply in twenty twenty two had a had a lot of influence on some of the priorities and the way agenda was set across each of the different working groups in G20. And each of these basically went and linked back. And just because G20 comes to an end in India on on September 10th, that's not the end of it because these conversations are continuing all the way to COP. A lot of the the global issues... um, because that that were a result of the fallout of COVID and Russia Ukraine uh, invasion, a lot of that or that had an that had a great influence across all the working groups uh, for India and G20. You also mentioned that this would also have a bearing. Well, this would continue till COP. Uh, what are some of these trends or areas you think would also influence? Uh, COP, especially from the lens of, say, Global South, Global South in India? I think um, for this, I'll have to go back to the priorities that the Energy Transition Working Group had and what came out of it and therefore how that, how I expect that to continue. I don't know whether it will actually will or not, but that's how I expect it to continue. Um, so the energy, uh, so the Indian presidency had six priorities, which we all know about when we started, um, when they started, but essentially it sort of boiled down to a couple of sticky points. Um, one was on hydrogen, 
because India started off by saying that uh, they need standards for green hydrogen. Uh, that was the Indian government's priority. Um, and that resulted in a lot of negotiations. Um, the second one was on renewable energy uh, targets. How do you classify renewable energy targets? The third one was on uh, critical minerals because India, again, had a couple of ideas that they wanted to take forward on the critical mineral front. Then there was finance. Um, and then there was um, just transition, but just transition was not given adequate importance in the entire agenda. Now, um, of these, um, it's a very easy metric to see what was okay and what was not. Um, if you open the chair summary on the G20 website for the energy group, uh, there's a para, the, there are six points, six or seven points toward the end of the chair, uh, uh, in the chair summary, where it's a version uh, where they've rounded up saying that these were the six or seven points where there was no consensus. Uh, and those are the sticky issues. Those are literally the ones that are going to continue till COP. One of that is probably going to be the renewable energy target, where I'm assuming that now that we have in language something called tripling of target, um, tripling of renewable energy capacity, uh, we're able to negotiate whole bilateral and multilateral meetings between now and COP, particularly the uh, UAE. And come to a consensus on the year and the capacity and the baseline. Even if we do like one of these three things, we would have achieved like some amount of width um, in UAE COP. And I see that as a continuing focus. Um, critical minerals is a very, it's not a COP related topic, but it has received a lot of attention and um, it's also how the geopolitical eco the, the geopolitics of energy is changing and that and it's not just about oh like you know where are the minerals and who controls the sources and it, it's not just about that it's about how the thinking around geopolitics of energy is changing it's no longer location specific it is moving it, it is now becoming a moving because earlier the idea was not that there won't be oil production. There would be oil production. The problem would be getting the oil out. So in the logistics part of it. So there was energy security risk from a pricing perspective or from a logistics perspective. Um, now the energy security is no longer from, you know, from, from like, a well, pricing and supply and logistics are still a concern. But it's more about it's gone beyond these midstream worries and gone back to the fundamentals, both at the demand and the supply. Um, so there is so that amount of rethink. Of course, none of that is going to shape up to COP, but um, it will be useful if uh, countries start coming together on the issue on supply chains. Um, because as the IEA loves to say, uh, as the IEA says, actually. The it, it's only when countries start working together is when we are going to reach, um, uh, we are going to be able to resolve 
the challenge of not just installing renewable energy, but acquiring the materials to install renewable energy, which is the need of the art. Um, so I'm, uh, I think I have answered your question. Yes, yes, you did. Uh, so I just want to like kind of go a bit more, you know, deeper in this critical mineral question and then come back to, you know, the larger G20, COP, etc. It's like, don't you think like it's, it is a big challenge on how to align countries. I mean, China is clearly ahead in terms of this race currently with US and EU looking really domestic with IRA and all the different laws. Like how how does one bring together countries? I know it's a very it's a convoluted question, but like in in your opinion, like how can we form alliances where some one party is very far ahead, the others have made laws to catch up, and the third set of parties are still thinking about like what do I do? And just starting to even realize that this is the race that we need to fight. So what do you think needs to happen? And is there scope within a COP or a G20 to even like attempt to create and bring countries together? I have to say the Indian presidency was very ambitious. They really wanted to do this. Okay, like they were really trying right up till the last day to have consensus on critical minerals on uh, sort of Indian government, uh, Indian presidency drafted principles for of critical minerals and they were really trying very hard to get consensus on this. So there are, so there are efforts. Um, I think we're for that. But uh, to your larger question on um, you know how difficult it is, I think it is uh, I, I mean the obvious answer is yes it is considerably difficult to find consensus. I mean look at how long it's taken for us to get to Paris and that was probably the last time we had consensus on something that big um, and then loss and damage fund last year that was again something that big right um, so it it is extremely difficult but I think it's um, this is a it's a strategy game more than cons- and while the broader point is to build consensus eventually uh, and here I'll go to the technical terminology, friendshoring, right? Like countries are desperate, are, are definitely doing friendshoring. What the US is doing, what EU is doing, what uh, Korea is planning to do, what Australia is doing with Korea. It's it's all, they're all trying to friendshore um, and protect their energy security. Uh, it's very interesting that you ask about the people who are left behind because... Uh, that's not a, that's a topic that does not get a lot of life because everybody focuses on um, a set of countries who own uh, all the minerals and who have large control on the processing and refining um, without considering the countries who have primary resources and production and whether they can actually be a key player in the game. So the challenge, the, 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 the the attempt is always to showcase two large countries sort of you know coming into a bullfight but that may not even be the uh, the outcome of this entire strategy as we go forward and for this we need a lot of global south countries to come together and that's where i think we need to build consensus so we need to build consensus but in the global south and not necessarily around the world 
first we need to get like these countries who actually own the minerals to really own the minerals you know what i mean like it's not just owning it and producing it and you know sending it to some but to have ownership of not just the mineral resource but also a say in how or in where these resources will go in how uh, you know rules will be made around sharing of the wealth around these resources um and using that wealth for domestic development i think a lot of this conversation needs to be had and that's where consensus can be built a lot of the consensus can be built in global south primarily because that is where a lot of your demand is going to come from look at africa look at asia that these are your key demand centers just because we have a growing population and that means an increase in energy demand and that means an increase in renewable energy capacity not from because uh, because not only do we have to meet your latent demand you have to also replace existing stock and that's where i think we need to make use of bilateral ties soft power uh everything that is there in the book to actually form that consensus if i may ask a slightly philosophical question just to keep shifting the tone of the conversation uh the points that you mentioned regarding consensus building on critical minerals all of them obviously stand true but this consent this whole consensus building exercise these group of nations coming together the idea itself has taken a hit in last several years there were several factors at play there was covid then there have been wars and then the governments that have come in key economies that i'm talking from us to european hm uk even india or china for the china has not seen any change of government but but the government policy to look more inwards than outwards uh, what we call atmanirbharta The, this is becoming a prevalent phenomena which in a way is very restrictive when you come on a table to have a discussion with 20 different countries the african continent is not the same as it was a decade back it has a very strengthened different position on the table it, so in middle of this this country india which is the, which is you know kind of a golden eye these day for green energy investment and golden boy sorry these days because of the democratic and uh, investment in green energy and everything and we are trying to balance as you said we did really try uh where does this place us first and second obviously if you can you know respond to my philosophy that i mentioned so i think resource nationalism is not new let's be very honest um we've seen this through the decade we've seen a resurgence and then a fall and a resurgence again when uh, a lot of the if i go back into history a lot when control of oil was changing from companies to national governments that was a resurgence of resource nationalism um and even before that when we go into like coal and oil and when ships were during world war 2 when the britain uh, when britain went to oil in school that again resource nationalism right so a lot of this question on resource nationalism it feels like it's new but it's not and yes you're right in the sense that countries are no longer where they were 10 years ago and i think that's a good thing i think it's good that the african union is not where it was 10 years ago i think it's good that they are strengthening uh, that that they are coming together um to form a cohesive and a strong standpoint um 
I think it's a good thing that the Southeast Asian countries have found common ground and are coming together um, uh, to form a po- uh, to form a good bloc. Um, where does this put? Now to come back to your second que- uh, to to take this question on to consensus building. Yes, it becomes a problem. Um, I won't call it a problem. It becomes challenging to bring consensus amongst different blocks. Um, particularly if these blocks are have a strong economic and social and political point of view, um, you know, behind their consensus and reason behind their consensus. Um, but I think that a lot of conflict resolution, and this goes into the territory of conflict resolution more than consensus building, honestly, has been on finding a common minimum ground, which is possible, which may take a while for it to happen. So if we are have to take the research nationalism debate and talk about it from this particular lens, um, it's about trying to find the balance between the resource nationalism that African Union has with respect to its critical minerals and the demand that India has with respect to the need for these critical minerals. And that's where your common minimum ground comes across because it is economic in nature and which is where you found form a relationship. And it's not just India, this could be the US, this could be EU. In fact, with the IRA, it's probably the US because the IRA, the IRA actually has policies that can get, uh, uh, that can push investments in these countries, right? So the the point is you need to start by at least finding a common minimum ground. And uh, political strength is not a bad thing while trying to form a common minimum ground. Because what it does is it gives the stakeholders in the process because the common the the the, the position of strength comes from strong institutions uh, that have made these these governments a position of strength, right? And that then reflects onto the people and the participative process that has involved that has been involved in reaching this position. All of which I think is a great thing to have. It's now about finding you know, where we can do what. And that's where I think people like me get our bread and butter from. So I'm all for this. Okay. Speaking of that, like, let's, today is September 1st and we're recording this episode and uh, the leaders summit is about to happen in the next eight, nine days. So, you know, speaking of that, could you tell us like what could be some of the key issues and how do you think it might play? Like, uh, this is, me asking you to make your predictions of how it might unfold in the next, you know, week or so. What could be the key talking points, and what you think could remain as thorny issues even as the India's G twenty presidency ends? I will be very honest. I have been a little cut out after the July Energy Minister meeting, so I have not followed. Uh, the G20 negotiations, the the leader summit, the Shanpa meeting negotiations that have happened. Uh, so I may not be very well informed for this question, but hypothetically in my head, I hope that we found consensus on the renewable energy target 
from an energy sector perspective. The reason for this is because that would be a very big win for India. And the reason why it will be a big win for India is because of the domestic push that India has towards re renewable energy, that the Prime Minister himself has put towards renewable energy, right? So that will be a big win for India. And even if we have like one thing, either a baseline or a number, uh, that's also enough. That in itself is like a good, strong point for the negotiations ahead to continue. Um, in addition, if something has come out on um, finance, that would also be because India has been pushing for inclusion on low-cost finance, for climate finance to come into play. And so far, none of the negotiations have really delved very deep into this issue on climate finance. Um, so I don't know what last minute uh, he'll bury the, uh, the government and NEA can pull, but like if they can, like this would be possibly an area. So the international, um, uh, the, the global biofuel alliance, which we all know is going to be launched. And that I think is really a good point for India because it may be the third institution international institution that India helps. One, the first being ISA, the second being CDRI. And I think it's time that somebody uh, that, you know, countries, uh, somebody takes sort of ownership of the entire conversation around biofuels um, and sort of leads this global effort. Um, this is also something that Brazil can take forward because Brazil and biofuels very close alliance, right? So this is something that Brazil can take forward. So I think uh, these are like the two, three things that I'm considering in this, uh, in what could happen. But I should also say our promise has been known to surprise all of us. Uh, so we should literally expect the most unexpected. I love that for a good headline, definitely. But uh, uh, one thing I want to add, uh, we discussed what could be the agenda, what could be the sticky points. So what about fossil fuels? You know, this whole language around fossil fuel abatement that caught a lot of people by surprise. There were a lot of furore that why this language has been used. And apart from that, uh, what do you think is emerging? If not as a consensus, but merely a consensus on fossil fuel abatement, because currently the language that came out from the last energy transition working group was very dicey, you know, here and there. Uh, so what does it indicate first, uh, 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 the intentions of the G20 and what going forward do you think would uh, happen in this? If I'm not mistaken, this whole fossil fuels was a point yeah, that was yeah, not agreed yeah, upon. It was, it was in the last yeah. six, seven paragraphs, if I'm right. Yeah. Okay, so this, the whole topic of fossil fuel abatement and and phase down and phase out, I mean, we've been hearing it since Glasgow, right? Like Glasgow and the run-up to Glasgow had been all about phasing out coal. Um, fossil fuels is a newish addition and that's the word government of India addition uh, into the debate because India has always maintained that if you're talking about phasing out or phasing down, we talk about all fossil fuels and not just coal. Um, so it's been going on since Glasgow. Uh, they tried to resurrect it again during Egypt. Didn't have a lot of uh, traction there. Um, 
at the start of the energy transition working group uh, meetings, uh, the government of India um, had made it categorically uh, clear that that they're not just going to talk about coal because coal is important to India from an energy security standpoint. And they're very happy to talk about, and they're okay with talking about uh, phasing out, phasing down of fossil fuel, but it has to be fossil fuels as a whole. Um, so given that, I think we are back where we were since Glasgow. The G7 made some headway um, because it actually spoke about natural gas. And I think a lot of the sticky point is boiling down to uh, na- continued usage of natural gas um, when we are talking about the larger fossil fuels debate because there is one entire block that is heavily dependent on natural gas then there's the other block that's heavily dependent on coal and the two shall never meet. So they keep clashing with each other. And uh, with the G7 and the, and the community that came out of the G7, there was hope that uh, something on those lines could be pushed even in G20. But G20 is also reflective of uh, ambitions under COP. And it's not just about fossil fuels abatement. Uh, it's also about its production. It's also about oil production. It's, a, it's also about where it's coming from and whether you know uh, these countries have a larger say on the table. Um, in COP, it, uh, you are talking to 196, 197 countries. Uh, in G20, you're talking to 20 countries. Um, so the larger conversation was, it is not, this question is not a question for G20, it's a question for COP, which is why there was no consensus around that, which is why you could also see conversations on direct air capture that came into, uh, uh, that came into the community. Although, I mean, you know, if you look at most IPCC models, there are elements of CCUS and direct air capture in all of these models without which we will not meet our two-degree target. Um, so that's where the fossil fuel debate abatement debate stands at. And I am not reasonably sh- and I don't know how much it's going to be picked up at COP again. Um, and there's something that I was telling somebody else you know when we when when you talk to countries who consume or produce large amount of fossil fuels yes they need to transition everybody needs to transition to clean energy but there is a negative spin to it and there's a positive spin to it the positive spin to it is you you flood the market with money for renewables so that you increase renewable energy to the extent that it can beat from uh economically it can beat your fossil fuel uh, generation politically and from a political economy perspective it benefits the stakeholder that is if you do that there is automatically your your usage in terms of fossil fuels is going to start dropping and that is something that governments will actually listen to you and you know try and push because the people will also want to hear something like this um the negative side of the story is you keep saying, oh, we need to cut down coal, oh, we need to cut down gas, oh, we need to, yes, we need to do all of that. Um, but it's about how you try and push the message and what are the contingents and what are the things that individual governments are facing behind. A lot of the fossil fuel abatement question comes 
from a political standpoint. Um, the India is entering elections next year. US is entering elections next year. Uh, President Biden has very different priorities. President Prime Minister Modi has very different priorities. And how and and this entire fossil fuel abatement problem comes back in the middle of some of these priorities. And these are just two countries that I'm telling you about. But um, but you know, uh, elections happen everywhere, and that determine a lot of the priorities that are happening uh, that countries choose on climate. Sandeep, do you have a question on this? Um, go ahead. I mean, I have, but I will roll two questions together on the last one. So, okay, uh, this fossil fuel, uh, you answered pretty well. I think you have covered everything, but. You know, uh, I missed asking earlier when you were talking about CBRI, Global Biofin Alliance. So with, uh, it all sounds good, you know, International Solar Alliance and CBRI and now Biofin Alliance. But we know that we are finding very hard to find networks for Biofin Alliance. There are still some countries which are, you know, iffy about joining GBA. India is hunting for launch, 20 member countries, etc. We... ISA, uh, there are very mixed feelings for ISA. CDRI is doing a great job, but they're very, very new. They're like very fresh on this. What is it that these alliance, through this alliances, first you can explain India is trying to achieve and how would you rate them? Uh, you know, in the whole uh, discussion or the whole geopolitics, what role would these agencies play for us? By us, do you mean India? By for India, what are we trying to achieve, or are we achieved anything? And if I can add one more question in this, to add to Shreya's question, it's one thing when say a China or a US forms an alliance because they can put their financial might behind that, but it's another thing if a country like India, which which I'm not saying is doesn't have the money or resources, but it's not like the GDP or you know whatever economic parameter you measure. It doesn't have those financial institutions to lend money at large scale. So when you when you house something like that in a country like India or compared to the say a country like US or EU, like how different it is when that financial incentive may or may not be available for others to join the bandwagon. So. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, my, but just adding to Shreya's question on that. And just, just and this is for the uninitiated audience. Uh, International Solar Alliance, when launched, was touted to be the OPEC-like body for renewable energy for solar. Uh, it is anything but that, you know. So this is the set of expectations that is there. So. Just give us this whole understanding of this whole ecosystem of all these alliances. So one thing that I want to say, say right at the outset is sometimes um, we are a little blinded by our expectations. Um, we expect a six-year-old body, a two-year-old body, a body that's not even formed to perform the work that we see other alliances and uh, other multilaterals doing that have been around for like 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and that's how we set our expectations and that's how, that's what we hope to say that, you know, in three years, like the, the an India-created alliance or an international institution is at the same level. No, institution building 
that took particularly multilateral institution building always takes a while um and in the initial years it is always the parent or the host who had proposed the idea who largely shapes the way the multilateral institution or the alliance will function just to give it feet just before uh, and and sort of sustain it until a point where it becomes an entity on its own and can you know just work on its own um and this is essentially and and this is not new to just india i mean aiib in china right china is very very involved in the creation and the working of aiib um the us is very involved with the world bank japan is very involved with adb so there are these considerations that i think we should give and therefore have benefit of doubt when we think about you know the purpose of such alliances point number 1 um point number 2 on what do they actually achieve um so they achieve a bunch of different things the first thing that they achieve is they put enough emphasis and focus on that particular issue what alliances and multilaterals by nature do is they start bringing countries together to start talking and focusing on a particular topic on a particular subject when have we spoken about biofuel at this much of a uh, uh, to so much of an extent in the last 10 years we haven't but now it's got the conversation rolling it's now got the conversation rolling up oh what is the california model on ending can india actually blend what is brazil going to be uh, how how much can brazil export can this be an actual viable alternate fuel so it brings that conversation and that topic into focus the moment you bring politically a topic into focus money starts flowing in that direction so that is the second purpose that alliances do they bring this conversation up which then helps provide some signal to the market to investors that this is an area of interest for xyz group or block or for the world as a whole and therefore we need to start thinking about it i'm not saying all of this happens overnight i'm not saying money starts flowing today then the land is created tomorrow money will start flowing no i'm not saying that it takes a while but but that is the second purpose of creating the third purpose of creating an alliance or an institution is also on technical expertise and here i think uh, i will push back on in on isa on the indian solar alliance because what the indian solar alliance is doing is it's also providing technical expertise in two countries who don't have the kind of robust think tanks that india does we in india sometimes forget that you know that that not every capital or not every country has the kind of networks and the kind of intellectual thinking even with energy and in india go back 10 years ago go back to like 2008 there were probably one or two think tanks that were right at the top so who would then provide technical expertise to governments who would provide technical expertise to companies so a lot of these alliances and multilaterals also provide technical expertise including the international solar alliance can the scope of the i of the international solar alliance be widening yes do does it or uh, does it have to um for does uh, a value while it does have a value proposition does it need to do more work to meet its value proposition yes nobody's saying no but it doesn't mean that there is no use of 
you know, some of these institutions. Um, lastly, about the finance question that Sandeep spoke about, right? Um, yes, money always helps. Never saying money doesn't help. And yes, we don't have as much. India does not have a lot of deep pockets uh, and does not have as deep pockets as the US or Japan or China or any of these other countries uh, or even the EU for that matter. But um, what we've learned and your I wear my researcher hat, uh, what we've learned a lot is you need a little bit of money to sort of de-risk the sector. To provide, and I know we all hate the word de-risk and blended capital, uh, blended finance, but you know, you need a little bit of money that then will help start getting the policies in place and the regulations in place that will then help it, uh, both public as well as private investors to come to that market, right? That little bit of money, India, that little bit of money for pilots, we do, be it in uh, International Solar Alliance. Hopefully the biofuel alliance, be it in, uh, you know, the uh, CDRI. Um, yeah, right. So we, we it is getting there. I And I genuinely think we need to give these institutions some like, you know, time to breathe and some space to breathe than like put these burden of expectations. And it, like, I, I think it's cool that we all have so so much expectation from these Indian institutions, which basically proves that, you know, we actually trust these institutions to some extent. And we are disappointed that they are not meeting our expectations. So, you know, that that's a good thing to have. Well, this is great. Uh, and thank you for covering all the different topics from energy diplomacy to G20 to critical minerals and um, you know, all the way to various, you know, issues of institutions and institutional building. I have one fine, uh, uh, final question, um, which is like, what is on Swati's plate and agenda going forward? Like, what is having experienced the G20 and then, you know, being a researcher for such a long time, working on topics ranging from gas to coal to just transition? Like, what are the three or four key topics that you are interested in working in, let's say, the next five years, right? wherever you work, whatever you are, you know, institutional affiliations. I think coal will stay close to my heart no matter where I go. Uh, I, and I know it's probably not the most political thing to say, but I'm talking about it in, um, in from a transition perspective. Um, and a lot of my focus is going to be... Um, sort of I'm bringing two topics together where I would like to look at the impact of uh, you know the transition that the impact of transition on some of the countries and regions so the just transition framework but also how we can make use of emerging technologies and emerging topics of conversation critical minerals supply chains electric vehicles to bridge that equity, to bridge the uh, the justice gap, the equity gap. Um, that's actually what my focus will be for the next couple of years. Uh, it's going to be on supply chains, it's going to be on critical minerals, just transitions and uh, transport. Uh, so I think that's basically everything. You know? 
no no that is not everything there is a lot of still that i uh, there is there is this entire topic on industry decarbonization which i haven't even touched upon okay there's hydrogen which i have not spoken about because i don't know anything about hydrogen like i like i can make up off the record i can make up stuff on hydrogen but i actually don't know anything on hydrogen so you know to be honest with you a lot of people are making up stuff about hydrogen even those who are not supposed to so yeah join the line but happy to know you know that you continue to focus on coal because all i hear from people all across is everyone is picking up one or the other threads on green energy which eventually leads to the same kind of discussion happy to know that you will continue to focus on coal because it needs to be there you cannot just abandon coal today saying in nay aaj se mai green energy enthusiast so what to you know so i mean like coal is still you know coal is still the driving force behind the global energy mix followed by oil and gas and and the whole idea of transition starts from reducing these fuels and you need to know what is going on in these sectors before you think about what is the transition and what is the impact going to be i see sandeep smiling i don't know what he agrees with me but yeah Yeah, no, I, I mean, you have to work on both sides, right? It's yep. You can't just work on one side and expect the other to just yeah, manage. Sure. Uh, well, thank you, Swati. This is yes. really great. Uh, as always, I learn a lot from you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I just wanted to say thank you for having such a broad spectrum conversation. It was just amazing, you know. So cover so many things. in wala thanks again thank you so much guys like i think it's just talking to it, it's not even a podcast to be when i'm like talking to both of you it's just like you know we are somewhere we are over drinks having a chat so thank you so much for having me on this show absolutely thank you for listening to the india energy r subscribe to this channel to never miss an update To drop us a feedback visit our website or write to us at theindiaenergyr@gmail.com We are on Twitter you can follow at tieh_podcast and get in touch with the two hosts at shreya_jay and at sandeep pai with a double i